Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome. We're talking about cleaning the waters of Florida's St. John's River. So we're going to talk about Florida wildlife and water flow and water quality and, and, you know, the whole quality of life in Florida is tied to the aquatic communities that float and seep around it. Uh, my guest today is Lisa Reinemann. Lisa is the St. John's Riverkeeper. Lisa Reinemann, the St. John's Riverkeeper in Jacksonville, Florida, has extensive experience building consensus around clean water issues and helped to implement numerous environmental initiatives and policies. Before being named the St. John's Riverkeeper, Lisa served as a valuable member of the St. John's Riverkeeper Water Policy Group, a group that advocates for water conservation and reuse and policies that are more protective of our water resources. Lisa served as a former senior staff member for Jacksonville Mayor John Payton. So, hi. Um, Lisa, the, uh, the St. John's River... Is, uh, it's about 310 miles long, and it's, it's called a black water stream that has, and some have called it a lazy river. Can you tell us a bit about the natural history about this river? Most definitely. The St. John's River is the longest river in the state of Florida. It travels more than 300 miles from its headwaters south of here, it's actually, it runs north. So the river begins just southwest of Orlando, um, off the east coast, just west of Vero Beach. And it travels over that 310 miles very slowly. And the reason it's called one of the laziest rivers, it only drops in elevation about 27 feet. And so it kind of meanders north, and whenever it can spread out and make a lake, it will. So it's sometimes also called the River of Lakes. And it's a spring-fed river, so there's more than 100 freshwater springs that add to um, this wonderful system. And in a, just to make it more interesting, it also has a 100-mile estuary that's brackish water, so it's a combination of fresh and salt. So our river has a little bit of everything, everyone, except for mountains. It's extremely flat and extremely lazy. And is it tied to the aquifer? It is, it is. So about 30% of the flow comes from its freshwater springs, and so that's a direct conduit to the Florida aquifer. And so a lot of the work that we do is to protect our aquifer, our springs, because our river is only as healthy as the springs in the Florida aquifer. Right. Um, it's a, yeah, people need to remember that, you know, what they're doing to their wells and stuff ends up affecting our rivers. Uh, exactly. And unfortunately, yeah. So back in, unfortunately, back in 2008, the St. John's was recognized as being number six on the list of Americans' 10 most endangered rivers. And I see that at about that time, people, and you weren't yet the head of the Riverkeeper then, but I see that um, at that time, you know, people rolled up their sleeves and commence the kind of cleanup work, and uh, this was being benchmarked by the Lower St. John's River Report, and I understand that you're working on a, a new one that's about to come out or has come out, and, and how, you know, 
how has the river improved since then, or what's the state of the river? Sure. So, so while I was not the river keeper in 2008, I was a very active volunteer working with my predecessor. And at that time, the, the biggest threats were water withdrawals in Central Florida. Central Florida was interested in pulling out surface water for drinking water, which, which is extremely dangerous for a flat water system like this one. Because when you pull out salt water, I mean, I'm sorry, fresh water, it actually pulls in more salt water. And so that does damages to your freshwater grasses, which are the filters of the river. It's the kidneys. Um, so we were able to push mm. back those water withdrawals. In addition, nutrient pollution was a major factor, a major issue, driving or fueling toxic green algae blooms. And the main focus then was nitrogen. And so fortunately, we were able to win some lawsuits to get more protections to reduce nitrogen. And so we've made some progress. Um, sadly, though, looking you know, ahead now to 2019, we're seeing new threats um, that are undermining those improvements we've made over the past 20 years. And what are those new threats? So one of them is still nutrient pollution, but instead of nitrogen, we're seeing a significant increase in phosphorus. And so the type of algae we've had in the river this year, in fact, we've had more than 90 days worth of blue-green algae on the surface of our river of about 50% of it. So it's been an extremely slimy summer, um, but it's being fueled by phosphorus. And so while we've reduced nitrogen in the river, now we're seeing an increase in phosphorus, and there hasn't been any focus on removing that type of nutrient from the river, um, and so that's got to be a focus um, moving forward. In addition to that, mm. we're seeing more negative impacts of sea level rise. We're seeing more salt water going further upstream because our river's so flat, it's making it further and further inland, and so that's doing damage to the submerged grasses and the wetlands that are the important kidneys of the river and also critical habitat for our fisheries. Well, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing those are being seen in a lot of places. Uh, here in Massachusetts, we had record numbers of um, freshwater ponds having blue-green algae outbreaks, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, which is called you know, the cyanobacteria we're all reading about and stuff. And so yes. that's a real bummer to happening your way. And, um, and yeah, I, I guess, you know, for these algal blooms, the, the big things are, first, the food, which in this case is phosphorus, and then, you right. know, temperature and light helps it drive along. So people are quick to blame, you know, warmer weather because of climate change, but if mm-hmm. the uh, food isn't there, you're just not going to have such a big problem, I guess. Right, and, and unfortunately, you know, we've seen a serious uptick, uptick in phosphorus in our river just over the last year, and the water is warmer. Um, and so we started having blue-green algae mm-hmm. much earlier this year, and it's continuing as we speak today, at, you know, mid-September. And so we, we've got to really focus on not only being more resilient and resistant to sea level rise and rising waters, but also we need to restore these waterways and make sure we're protecting them and fortifying them to deal with the impact of climate change. Yes, absolutely. People need to reduce their carbon emissions, and everyone, we all need to do that, increase our carbon capture, 
for both the rising sea level that's putting salt up your rivers and for the blooming algae that is getting more growing time out of that. And what are the sources of the phosphorus for, um, that you're having to deal with? Yes, yeah, so, and that's really probably the saddest part of this story. Um, you know, Florida is growing at a pretty significant rate. We see about 900 new people in Florida every single day. And we have an inadequate and unsustainable management system of human waste. Not only do we have large areas with failing septic tanks, which add to this problem, um, one of the newest sources, specifically in the St. John's, is the disposal of sewage sludge. Sewage sludge is the byproduct of wastewater treatment. Um, and the solids have to go somewhere, and the cheapest way to dispose of them is on land. And so there, there's very few places that in Florida that you can dispose of them, and sadly about 80% of the, of the sewage sludge that's produced in our state is being disposed near the headwaters of the St. John's, which is undermining water quality from its very source. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. It is terrible, and, and what makes it even more, you know, just concerning is it's permitted by the state. Um, back in 2007, sewage sludge was threatening the Everglades, and so the state gave special protections to South Florida that banned this practice. So now South Florida is sending about 89,000 tons of sewage sludge north, and the cheapest place to take is the upper basin of the St. Johns River. Right. It's like whack-a-mole. It takes it one place and it comes up another place. It's, it's exactly whack-a-mole because, you know, we're spending millions of dollars to take septic tanks offline and then we're sending that sewage to wastewater treatment facilities and then we're putting the sludge or the solids that are taken out back along our waterways. So we're literally playing whack-a-mole with sewage in the state of Florida. There's not a long-term strategy to deal with it, and we're growing dramatically every single day. Mm. So, so that's one of the biggest fights we have right now is, is trying to, to encourage um, our governor as well as our legislature and agencies to tackle this problem and really look at it comprehensively and holistically so we're not just moving it to another river that we're really dealing with a long-term or creating a long-term strategy. Exactly. You need to be a part of the ecosystem where you're not burdening the system with more of our waste in this case. It's too bad they can't use that that, uh, sludge for fertilizer on the orange crops or something, but... Yeah, well, and, and they can if, in, in fact, they do, they justify this disposal method as fertilizer, but it's right. 100 times more than what you would need for fertilizer. Um, but, the, you know, the reality is in Florida, our soils are phosphorus rich, and so we don't oh, need right. to add additional phosphorus. However, there are definitely places out west in Colorado that need phosphorus and would benefit for it. Um, and there's also other areas that are using their sewage sludge and turning it into energy. Um, but, you know, all of that takes forward thinking and investment, and, and sadly we're not there yet in Florida. 
Yeah, and sadly, that's the case all over the country where if it's not a big enough problem, you can just ignore it. And, um, and people don't make the connection that you do that the life of the river is connected to the thinking piles off in the land over there and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is right. why your work is so important, the educational outreach of making these connections. Um, so I'm very grateful that you're here on the show today, talking once again about how that what is, if it isn't spelled out, people just aren't going to make the connections. And, of right. course, people are doing so much with their septic systems, and that's, that's a, a constant problem. And so they, they feel like that's the problem when actually, no, there are, um, there are other elements that can be addressed in a systemic way. Bravo. Um, are there other aspects of the um, river report that um, you want to talk about? I'm sure. Well, I think, you know, one of the things is becoming more and more clear that sea level rise in Florida is not just a coastal issue, that there's significant impacts inland. Um, and we're seeing, and the River Report is actually highlighting this, that we're seeing more of those, the wetlands that we're losing as well as submerged grasses from that saltwater intrusion. Not only does that provide important filtration to help the river deal with this pollution, it also stabilizes the banks and it provides flood protection. And so we're more and more vulnerable to rising waters, you know, hundreds of miles inland away from the coast. And sometimes that's missed by elected officials and others that are just looking at the coastline. But in Florida, we're so flat, you have to look further inland as well. Interesting. It's such a low state that we worry about how you're going to survive the big storms. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and all of this increases storm surge. And so while the waters are rising and our banks are less stable and we don't have the sponges that are the wetlands, then we're more vulnerable to the big storms. And like what we saw with Hurricane Irma back in 2017, um, you know, we had, we had the storm pass by, you know, 70 miles to the west, and, but we had, we had Category 3 storm surge. So it was three times as high as it should have been and the models captured. And part of that's due to the manipulation um, of our waterway due to sea level rise and saltwater intrusion, but also other things like the deepening of the river for larger ships as we've deepened the river to create a superhighway for larger boats to come to the port, we've also created a superhighway for the Atlantic Ocean to come further inland, threatening downtown Jacksonville. Oh, my gosh. Because you're right there at the mouth of the St. John and uh, facing east, and mm-hmm. here it comes. Exactly. So the, so the mouth of the St. John's, the, the river meets the Atlantic Ocean at Mayport, Florida, which is just oh. south of the Florida-Georgia line on the East Coast. And so, like, I'm looking out right now. We're about, downtown's about 20 miles inland, but we've seen a doubling of the tidal range since they began deepening the river 100 years ago. So we're just allowing and inviting the Atlantic Ocean to come further, further inland. Yeah, this is classic oceanography. If you dig, if you open, the, widen the mouth or dig it deeper, 
then you're going to have more title range and a greater fetch and everything. And you'd think the exactly. engineers are taking out all the, together. Right. They're, you're taking out all the speed bumps, and so you're just allowing it to rush in. That's a good analogy. So we do have a lot of challenges, and, and while we've made some improvements, you know, we're seeing new threats. We're seeing new issues that aren't being dealt with in a comprehensive way. And so that's one of our focuses moving forward is making sure that as we talk about resiliency to sea level rise, that also means fortifying the river by reducing pollution and protecting those critical wetlands and the river's natural ability to protect itself. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, you mentioned how that, you know, with all the people moving in every day to Florida, that you have a a water pollution problem, but you also have loss of those sponges and habitat and wetlands. Right. Isn't that a, can anything be done about that? Well, I mean, definitely. There, there are ways to protect, you know, these areas, but you have to have the, the long-term political will. Um, you know, right now there's too many um, elected officials that they're not looking for long-term solutions. They're looking at the next political cycle. And, and so what we're focusing on is on trying to have that long-term view, looking at this, these protections of these critical pieces of this puzzle, you know, in terms of future generations. Yes. And the, I have found the first step to doing that is to build these strong and diverse coalitions that you refer to, like the one you were working with when they started these uh, river reports and stuff. Uh, we're going to have to take a short break, and then I'll be right back to talk some more about the St. John's River of Florida. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Lisa Reinemann, she's the St. John's Riverkeeper. Lisa, um, how can people uh, follow along with our conversation or reach out to you? Sure, they can find us on Facebook or go to our website at stjohnsriverkeeper.org. And if they want to reach you, they can, they can contact you through the website. Most definitely, as well as Facebook. Yeah. We're very active on social media and so um, there's multiple ways to find us. And if you're ever in Jacksonville, be sure and, and look us up. Yeah, I recommend it highly. Uh, we're talking about helping people understand the connections that are out there in the watershed of the St. John's or whatever watershed you happen to be located in. Uh, and one of the issues is that we're having uh, more and more water damage from rising sea level and storm surge at the same time, we're losing all those sponges that, uh, you know, the wetlands, the green spaces that uh, play a big role. And so making that, crossing that gap, is, is that understanding gap, is a real challenge. And I just want to share with you something we're doing at the Ocean River Institute here in Boston and Cambridge. And um, we've been working with individual towns to uh, have them recommend stop fertilizing the grass because established lawn doesn't need fertilizing. And we found out that um, when you don't fertilize the grass, the grass is no longer swimming in fertilizer, and it sets down more roots. And Mm -hmm. when it sets down more roots, it becomes more resilient and healthier and more drought-resistant. And and being healthier, it puts on more foliage. And so then it um, is denser and more less vulnerable to pests and herbicides, which are also things you can buy from your fertilizer company. You know. um, and, but most importantly, uh, that more uh, foliage increases the sponge effect or the buffering from these extreme weather events. And so to engage people, I got out the um, drain board from my kitchen sink and set it out on the table out in, in, the Boston, uh, in Boston there and, uh, or at farmer's markets. 
and uh, we, we sat on the sloping table, you know, two Lego houses, and then upstream of the Lego houses, I had a couple of sponges for, you know, lush lawns, and then on the other, above the other house, we had a rocky patio, i.e. a rock, and, um, right. and then the, the, the people would take a turkey baster into a water bottle and create a rain deluge with a turkey baster, and we'd see, you know, the effects of having um, mm-hmm. buffers, you know, these, these sponge areas, uh, you know, bringing it back home again about how that, hey, you know, you actually can um, protect your home from storm surge, let alone the rest of the river system, right. by um, taking out your impervious patio and putting in an unfertilized lawn. <laughs> Um, well, and, and that's one but, of the, the program, our educational programs is our river-friendly yes. program, and it's exactly those types of things. There are things we can do in our everyday lifestyle as well as in our yard to reduce nutrients, to be more river-friendly, and also to reduce our consumption of energy and, and water and all of these things that make a huge difference if we all engage. And, and tell me more about that program. What, what are you focusing on to reduce nutrients? Well, and, and, well, one of the things that we really um, have been celebrating is that Florida has many native plants that are absolutely gorgeous, and they don't need mm. fertilizer. They don't need water once they're established. Yeah. And so we partner with the Florida Native Plant Society to encourage people to have Florida native yards um, and actually have a competition people can enter um, to celebrate, you know, going back to nature, not only um, do you use less water, no fertilizer, so less, no pesticides, so you don't have all of these, this pollution, but it's low maintenance, so you have more time to actually get out and enjoy the St. John's River. And it looks good. Exactly. It's beautiful. We, um, we've been working on trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen that's, and, and fertilizer from the lawns of the towns around Indian River Lagoon, down by the lagoon there. And um, so we're saying, you know, increase the setback from the waterway of your lawn and put natural plantings in. So I had my uh, college student interns contacting the garden clubs of Florida and saying, what are the best local plants to put into your buffer area? And basically any plant that's local is good, you know. (laughs) Uh, right. <laughs> well, and, but you know, people and we, ask we have, me, they say, "What's the best?" You know. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and there are some wonderful guides um, online that you can plug in your soil conditions and your sun and all of those things, and they'll tell you exactly what works best for your yard. And so, luckily, due to our current technology, it's very easy to go Florida native. Oh yes. Yeah, I just got to fight back some of the invasives. Um, are you having invasive plant problems as well as, as everyone else? We we are, and since um, there the the river actually, you know, one of the concerns is spraying the um, the Army Corps of Engineers. They spray the the channel for navigability purposes. But then you have some other agencies, state agencies, that spray in different areas. And so there's an ongoing effort trying to get them to reduce their spraying, do more targeted um, spraying. And and they did actually hold a series of workshops because a lot of folks are concerned of the 
short-term impacts as well as long-term impacts to some of the native grasses. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a process of trying to get more site-specific, I guess, because um, we don't, you don't mind them killing the weeds or the invasives. But there, there does tend to be a little bit of overspray, um, depending yeah. on the different folks out there. And so there's always a need to have more education of the applicators as well as to have, you know, folks that are out and about on the river to keep an eye and reporting when they see something that, that doesn't look quite right. That's really interesting. In, in uh, the newspaper today, I read that in France, they have, um, you know, the wineries, the wine orchards or whatever they're called, the vineyards, right next to people's homes. And so people in their homes have organic gardens, and they're upset about the sprays on the vineyard coming into their land. And so they just passed a rule in France that set up a buffer area where you can't spray in your vineyard because they don't want it getting out of the vineyard. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I can imagine it only took 300 years to work that one out in France and their vineyards and stuff. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> well, and that's what they say, you know, in, in the work that we're, we're doing is you have, to, you have to continue beating the drum and, and, and work on these issues continuously because it takes, you know, it can take years, it can take decades, or in that case, hundreds of years. Um, unfortunately, we are worried that there is a renewed sense of urgency because the whole impact of climate change and warmer waters and sea level rise is making the issues of the past even more urgent today. Yes, but it's important that people take the time to listen to each other and not just railroad stuff because of urgency. And so that, has, that was the problem with the, I imagine this was the problem with the vineyards in France was that the organic farmers are saying, don't do any pesticides, don't do any you know, chemicals at all. And, and the, the, the winemaker is saying, I must, or it's da 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 da, you know. And so they just have right. entrenchable sides. And, and, and this is the important work that you've been putting. And it depends on volunteers mostly getting together on these committees and just going over and over again, okay, well, you know, where, where's the wiggle room? And in this case, they decided the wiggle room was on the side of the vineyards and not on the side of the organic farmer having to move his organic farm further away from the vineyard. Of course, the plot, mm-hmm. first of all, that wasn't an option. But um, what you end up do is through going through this process, instead of just turning to the government to decide, is you come up with more robust solutions, and they're more right, complicated right. usually. So I, I take hope that this, dialogue is going on between the, the weed sprayers and, and the floor in your watershed there and, and the natural concerns have, have ways of, you know, it gets really interesting, the, the solutions they come up with um, at the end of the day. A lot it it really does. Florida. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, it really does, but it, that, it's yeah. a matter of having all the stakeholders around the table. You know, that is critical. Yeah, and often they get going and then they're about to decide in a new stakeholder pops up and goes, wait a second. And so then you, you, can't, you can't just railroad it through and say, oh, we've been through the process. Instead, you need to, to revisit it because these solutions that are going to lessen climate change, you know, are worth doing it right rather than hastily. It's really important that we get the right things going. Otherwise, we're right back to whack-a-mole where we were earlier in the program. Right, right. Um, so... 
I, I read that um, Jacksonville uh, came together to help with, uh, uh, what was it, the manatee, uh, the, the manatees in general, or was it a manatee habitat? I forget the notes here. Yes, yeah, so it was actually a manatee protection plan, and and it was it was a plan that came out of a real you know real challenging time. Um, we had a significant number of manatee deaths. There's a lot of boating here in Jacksonville. Not only do we have the amazing St. Johns River running through our community, there are numerous tributaries as well as the intercoastal, and we had too many um, manatee deaths, so the state was going to cut off permits for new docks if our city didn't come together and do something. So it was a collaboration forced by <laughs> by some pretty you know, strong sticks to come together and figure it out. Um, so the good news is we were able to get everyone from law enforcement to the boating community, fishing, environmentalists around the table and came up with a plan here in Duval County, and that plan and partner with all the other ones across the state made a significant difference. In fact, back you know two decades ago, we thought that manatees were going to go extinct, and there were less than 1,000 manatees in the state of Florida. Now there's more than 6,000 and they've actually just been, they've been moved from the endangered species um, list to the threatened species list. So it's a really exciting story of folks coming together and, and taking it seriously. And those people that didn't take it seriously, law enforcement stepped in and fined them until they did. So what does that mean? You set up low-speed areas or no boating areas? Exactly. or. Yeah. It was it was low speed areas and you know and focusing on the areas that that were undeniably you know important places to slow down and and that's where some of the challenges come in because there's a huge stretch right in downtown Jacksonville that's a manatee protection zone and people really like to drive fast and, and show off in, in downtown as well as we have several big boat races. Um, so the the low um, speed zones have definitely done what they needed to do. And were the races moved elsewhere or just eliminated? They were they were timed. Um, you know, the, as the river gets colder up in this section, the manatees go further south, seeking for the springs, which are a constant seventy two degrees. And so they did it based nice. on timing as well as different locations within the St. John's that aren't as, as heavily populated. Excellent. They, they figured out the system and figured out the movement of the manatees so that they could hold races when manatees wouldn't be there. Instead of having to corral right. manatees or something else. Um, they just well, they, and they also had spotters and, you know, and folks that we have a gentleman from um, Jacksonville University that actually flies the river and does counts. And so just being extremely mindful of their presence and the need to protect them. That's, that's the way to do it. Um, and, again, it involves lots of volunteers. There's such a need for citizens to be involved in, in stewarding our environment and, when they brought the um, America Cup races to Bermuda, uh, Steve uh, Ellis, the, the head of Oracle, uh, they were racing the boats over these grass beds where the green turtles lived. And so um, the Oracle paid for volunteers to wrestle green turtles into 
uh, onto boats to be held in a, a, the aquarium during the races, and then they were released again <laughs> because the boats and turtles couldn't coexist, you know, because it was shallow water. Oh, yeah. And um, so bravo. Um, uh, how about the dolphins? I love it. So we have a very unique population of St. John's River dolphins. In fact, I see some out of my window as we speak um, that they Bravo. live in the St. John's River all season. So it's it's all year. So it's really exciting. There's a there's a calfing ground nearby. Um, unfortunately, they have had they've had had some challenges. Um, we talked about the dredging earlier. Um, the last time they dredged the river was in 2010, and there was an uh, unusually high mortality rate that year. Um, that year we also hmm. had the blue-green algae, so we're not sure if it was the dredging or the blue-green algae, but there was um, a significant uh, death event that year. And this year we're not seeing the mortalities, but we have seen um, very thin dolphins, and they've disappeared for a while. They went somewhere else. We're seeing some dolphins that are too far upriver in the freshwater section. They appear to be disoriented. And one of the concerns has been um, the toxins in the blue-green algae may be um, you know, negatively having neuro- neurological issues on, on where they are, or it's the sound from the dredging. So while we still have a high number of dolphins, they seem to be under stress at the moment. Interesting. Uh, we're seeing in Indian River Lagoon, more dolphins have uh, skin-eating fungal infections on them, mm-hmm. and that seems to be related to the nutrient loading in the waters of being more in a toxic soup like that. Or it's just because they're being stressed. I don't, I mean, we don't really know, but... Um, um, yeah, so all the more reason to be cleaning up uh, the St. John's and reducing uh, nutrient inputs and, um, yeah, whatever's fueling the uh, the algal blooms. It comes back to, isn't it mostly algal blooms that's causing the problem, you think? Yeah, well, we think so. We think that the, the dredging activity and the noise is driving them further south towards the algae, and so it's sort of they're oh, caught in between yeah. two bad things. Um, but we, there have been um, numerous accounts of dolphins as well as other fish with lesions on them, lesions on them and skin issues do um, what we think is the algae. It's near the algae areas, but, you know, it's so difficult to, to get enough conclusive science to, to show that there's that strong correlation, but we do believe there's enough that it's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just common sense. And just, you, if we want to have healthy dolphins, we've got to, you know, you know, people say, what's the number one pollution problem? And it's like, guys, just don't pollute. You know, this is like our right. home, you know. And so rather than, you know, is it the noise pollution or the algae pollution that's causing more damage to the dolphins? Well, they're both hurting. Well, you know? so right. Both are and, and even if you, you, gotta even if you don't. Right, and, and even if you don't care about the dolphins, the cheapest way to protect our this waterway is to stop the pollution at its source and keep it out of the system. Right. Uh, um, you know, unfortunately, there's sometimes the focus on, well, we'll try to get it out after the fact, but it's much more expensive. There's unintended consequences, and you're never going to get it back the way it, you could have done it if you'd focused on prevention. So that's one of our yeah. major focuses is stopping pollution at its source, which is the cheapest option. 
Right, especially because it involves developing systems and approaches that don't pollute that can be maintained over time. Right, right. This is really exciting. We're cleaning up the St. John's River in Florida, and, or at least they are, and um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with uh, Lisa Reinemann after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the St. John's River in Florida, and with me is Lisa Reinemann, who is the St. John's Riverkeeper. And once again, Lisa, how can we go to your webpage? Um, so visit our website at stjohnsriverkeeper.org. And I've done that, and I see on the homepage here you've got um, some advocacy campaigns. Um, tell me about these. 
Sure. You know, we, one of the ways we do our work to protect and defend the St. John's River is to activate citizen advocates. And so it's our job to do the research and provide the tools that everyone that cares about the St. John's River, its springs, and its lakes, a way to engage. And so some of the active ones we have is our Moms for Clean Water campaign. And that one is actually bigger than just for the St. John's. It's one we partner with all the other 12 water keepers that are in Florida, and we teamed up to engage moms across the state to reach out to our First Lady. The um, Governor DeSantis came in on an environmental platform. His wife, First Lady DeSantis, talked about clean water. And so we wanted to make sure we were supporting that effort to get moms engaged on behalf of their kids and future generations. Absolutely. I see there are many families that get... It's such a great way to get families engaged, too. Well, so, it's so a lot of fun. And, right. And, you know, during the summer, we encourage moms to send photos and emails and communication to First Lady DeSantis, and we'll be transitioning that and really focusing on the legislature as we move into the next session, and water policy will be definitely on the agenda. Another campaign that we focused on after Hurricane Irma was our River Rising effort, and the reason for that is Hurricane Irma, you know, we had historic flooding in Northeast Florida, but there really wasn't any political leadership, and we knew for us to be more resilient, that needed to change. So we began having a series of River Rising town hall meetings where you know, more than 1,000 folks came out and engaged and wrote letters to the local government, and now they have active committees working towards resiliency. In fact, tomorrow there's a symposium that's focusing on sea level rise and climate change. So we believe that this effort, this campaign, and all of the hundreds of people that came out really generated a new conversation, a much-needed conversation here in Jacksonville around sea level rise. Excellent. Really good. And a third campaign? The third campaign um, is around the algae issue we mentioned earlier. Um, You know, right now our river is suffering from sewage sludge and the nutrients that brings from South Florida. And so we knew we needed a tool to engage all of the people along the St. John's throughout the entire watershed. So it's a social media campaign as well as we've been going out and having a, a speaking series all over the watershed to get folks engaged. We've had more than 13,000 people sign a petition that's associated with that, as well as emails going to elected officials and the Blue Green Algae Task Force, making sure that all of Florida waters are protected equally, and that some don't suffer at the expense of others. Excellent. This is really impressive work you're doing, Lisa, and, and, and your whole team is doing. Um, and it's really great the way you're engaging people at different levels, from moms to committee groups to, um, you know, to these, workshop, these workshops and, and uh, gatherings that you're holding. So what's the overall takeaway that we should take from this? Well, I, you know, I think it, it for to protect our waters for future generations, it truly takes a collaboration. You know, we all need to be working together, not only within individual watersheds like the St. John's, 
but also building alliances across the state and across the the nation. Um, Our parent organization is Waterkeepers Alliance. We have hundreds of waterkeepers across the country, and so you can actually look at their website to see if you have a waterkeeper in your area, but we need to make sure we're holding our elected officials accountable to clean water for future generations for all. Yes, and um, so if people want to get involved with you, they should uh, do what? Well, you know, I think social media really gives us all such a wonderful tool. Um, you know, Facebook um, is, a, is, is an excellent platform, especially for folks that may not be in Florida, because then there's that connection. If you are interested in looking up St. John's Riverkeeper, on Facebook, we're also connected to other water keepers throughout the country. Um, Waterkeeper Alliance has been such a wonderful group. Not only do we have hundreds in the United States, we have more than 350 waterkeepers around the world. Um, so it's it's really about building and uniting advocates across, you know, around the globe for clean water. Right now, we have three waterkeepers that were badly hit in the Bahamas, and so we're coming together to raise money so they can not only rebuild their advocacy programs but also their homes, um, you know, and focusing on taking care of each other. So I think, you know, water brings us all together, but it's about a sense of community and a sense of really leaving this earth better for our kids and their great-grandchildren. Yes, and that is a critical point that is so often overlooked is that by bringing people together to work together on a common problem, they get to know each other and it becomes a stronger network that can then respond to these situations. And, you know, the east coast of Florida is just a stone's throw away from the Bahamas and uh, they are so suffering from devastation of the Category 5 hurricane that went through there. And to have people on the ground, networks on the ground because of your Riverkeeper program is mm-hmm. about the finest testament you can make for Riverkeepers, as I can imagine. Well, it, it was, you know, we were so fortunate on the east coast of Florida not to be hit, but we were on the phone, online, working with waterkeepers all along the coast and making sure that we're supporting one another. And, and that's really what this is about, is supporting each other and supporting good decision-making, giving credit where credit's due, but also holding people accountable when they're harming our waterways. Yeah, and by bringing people together, you know, the decision-makers have a credible group to go to as things are breaking and the credible people to turn to whenever they have to make decisions. And they are so thrilled about, you know, the citizen backup support that you guys provide that... Um, it's, it's, it's really important uh, to belong to a Rivers Keeper group. It's my little plug here. Um, yeah. Um, well, and, and, and I thank you for that because we are all privately funded and we're membership organizations. So um, we welcome folks from all over the, the um, world and country to join us. But also, if you have a River Keeper program in your neck of the woods, you know, definitely give them the support because uh, it's a great network of people. Yes, yes. And you were saying that St. John's River was Keeper was the second program in the country after the Hudson River? 
So actually, we were the we were one of the first. We were the second in the state, but I think we were in the top twelve. Um, but we're celebrating our twentieth anniversary coming up in December. Um, the Appalachian oh River Keeper on the other side of the state. They just celebrated twenty years. So uh, we are, you know, some of the old, we're one of the oldest waterkeeper programs. But the Hudson River Keeper, you know, that was the first. Yes, and then you know it is spread and and. Uh, important work you're doing, and it's important, as you said, that the river keepers talk to each other. Um, you know, there's a great rivers program in, in Washington, D.C. that helps, you know, all the river advocates gather together and, and as one body to talk to the decision makers in Washington, and, and everyone loves, those, the decision makers love those meetings because they'd much rather talk about rivers than war taxes or health care, so... Of it's very meaningful work, um, you know, and I have built wonderful relationships with politicians because um, everybody likes to recreate with water, be it oceans or rivers. And, uh, and you know, people badmouth politicians, but uh, in this fight, we're all friends and we're all pulling for cleaner, healthier environments. And it's, it's very fulfilling work. So, again, I urge people to, um, to check out well, I urge people to go to stjohnsriverkeeper.org and uh, check out this wonderful group and, and just to be informed about what's going on. You, know, you can sign up for their newsletter or something to um, keep them popping up over the transom of what's going on on the coast of Florida. Um, with all the people moving down there, they sure could use uh, help and, and, uh, and just awareness of what's going on because many of the issues that affect Florida are decided by committees that don't necessarily have, that have people and maybe in your community who are the decision makers of those uh, federal committees and stuff. So it's important that we keep communicating with each other. Lisa, exactly. we are out of time. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. And that's it for another episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Thanks for listening. And please take care of yourselves. And then take a moment to take care of this planet of ours. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.